Welcome to the Lakeside Baptist Church Podcast. We pray you are blessed as you hear the Word of God today. For more information regarding Lakeside Baptist Church, please visit lakeside.asn.au. by a woman who was in a hurry. So she's, he's driving down the freeway, or sorry, driving down the highway, and he's being tailgated by this lady. Uh, and they come to an intersection, and the light turns orange, so he stops, he slams on his brake and stops. The woman behind him is not happy, okay? She starts honking a horn, she's screaming, she's yelling, she's going ballistic, uh, she's doing hand gestures to match the intensity of the words that she is saying. Uh, uh, swearing, cussing, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then all of a sudden, there's a little tap on the, the lady's window. Someone knocks on a window, she looks over, and it's a police officer who happens to be on a motorbike. Uh, he asks her to get out of the car, she's screaming, she's carrying on. Eventually, he takes her down to the station. I'm not sure how he did that, <laughs> whether he put her on the back of the bike, but he got her to the station, uh, they searched her, they fingerprinted her, they put her in a cell. No mucking around in the US. This is a story from the US. Uh, a couple of hours later, she is released and the officer gives her personal stuff back and actually says, I'm so sorry, ma'am, uh, for the mistake. I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, while you were swearing, while you were carrying on, while you were doing uh, gestures. And I notice that what would Jesus do sticker on your car? I also noticed this sticker here, the, the Jesus fish on the boot of your car, and I naturally assumed that your car had, or you had stolen the car. I didn't realize that you were the owner of the car. I thought you had stole the car, because if you were really following those things, you wouldn't have been acting the way you were. Wow. How do you know who a disciple of Jesus is? What makes someone a disciple? What are the traits or characteristics of a disciple of Jesus? Is it a fish sticker? Nothing wrong with fish stickers. But is it a fish sticker? Or maybe we could stretch that analogy out a little bit more. What are your fish stickers? What are the things that you do or the way you behave or the things that you go to that make you believe you're a Christian? Maybe it's coming to church. Maybe it's even serving Maybe it's not swearing or not smoking. Maybe it's doing good things and therefore you think that is a sign of disciple. Maybe it is. What makes a disciple? How do you know who a disciple of Jesus is? What are the characteristics or traits of a disciple? Interestingly enough, if we come back to the fish symbol, uh, in the first century, for Christians, the fish symbol was actually a symbol of a disciple of Jesus. In the first century, you'll see here up on the screen, the fish was a Christian symbol uh, to, to, to kind of, it was almost a code to show where Christians met or you were a Christian. And the Christians, obviously there's lots if you look through the Bible, especially the New T Testament, and there's there's aspect of fish, the fishermen, and make fisher of men, I'll make you fisher of men, that Jesus comes back and has a barbecue and he eats fish for breakfast and um, but actually, the Christians grabbed the, the Greek word for fish, and they used it as an acronym, and that the first letter of every, uh, the word fish, 
Jesus Christ, God's son, saviour. So the Greek word for fish, they used that as an acronym to say Jesus Christ, God's son, saviour. And it was used as a code for persecuted Christians. I know we get a little bit frustrated in Perth that we have to wear a mask and, 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 and we might have to scan in and, oh, they're after Christians. But really, real persecution is what these Christians, first century Christians faced. That during the times of, of persecution of the Romans in the first century, they were put to death for practicing Christianity. If they were caught at church or gathering together, they would be put to death. They would be slaughtered, they'd be thrown to the lions, that kind of stuff, for entertainment. And the fish symbol actually became a display for, for meeting places for worship. So it would have this little fish painted or etched on, on, on limestone or doorways or trees, and that was a symbol for people to know, oh, this is where it is, I can go there safely and we can worship together. And the reason, this is the ironic thing about the reason why that was safe, is because the fish symbol was used by several pagan religions in the time, during that time, so, so the Romans wouldn't think anything of it. They just thought it was those other pagan religions, but actually it was the Christians that were gathering Many stories are told about the fish symbols that disciples, when they would come and meet each other, where a Christian or a disciple would meet another person, one of the things they would do in regards to identifying, are you a disciple or are you a follower of Jesus, is they would, one person would lean down and in the sand just do half the fish. If the other person was a disciple, if the other person was a Christian, what would he do? Mr. Squiggle, he would finish it off. He would finish off the fish and therefore they would know, oh, we're followers of Jesus, they were, they were safe, there was safe passage, I could stay at your house, we, we could pray together, we can do those types of things. If that person didn't finish off the fish, obviously he wasn't a disciple, it doesn't mean he was a bad person, it just means he wasn't to be trusted in those things. The other person may have thought, what's he doing on the sand? But obviously they didn't have iPads and pens in those days, so it wasn't that uncommon. But this was actually a symbol of what it meant to be a disciple. Who was a disciple? People who, who followed this symbol of the fish. What makes a someone or what makes someone a disciple? How do you know if you're a disciple? What are the traits or characteristics of a disciple? And that's what we're looking at in this series. We're going to be looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If you look at the dictionary, the dictionary defines a disciple of as a, a personal follower of Christ during his life, especially one of the 12 apostles, so obviously the, the 12 disciples, uh, or it goes on and it says, a follower or pupil of a teacher, leader or philosopher, a person who believes in ideas and principles of someone famous and tries to live the way that person does or did. It's a bit of an old-fashioned term, disciple, it's not something we use uh, much anymore, Throughout the Bible, we, we, we see, especially in the New Testament, it used, Jesus, right at the end of his ministry, actually instructs the 12 to go and make disciples. So Christians are referred to as disciples. Uh, the closest contemporary kind of word, I suppose, is apprentice. An apprentice is someone who is learning, who is studying, who, who's gaining the, the tools of the trade and, and falls under someone who is a master, who's a teacher of whatever that trade is. But it's got that concept. And so what we do in this series is this, we're going to be looking at the different disciples, we're going to be looking at about eight or nine of them, I think, and uh, like Braden said, he got Judas, which is a great one, actually, 
because out of all the disciples, we're probably more like Judas than the other ones. Um, but, but we're going to be looking at the different disciples, and we're actually going to be seeing what can we learn about what it means to follow Jesus. When they have their encounters with Jesus as disciples, what are the traits of a disciple? We're going to hear Jesus talk about what it means to be a disciple, and we're going to also see the way these original disciples, I suppose, act and behave. What can we learn from their encounters with Jesus? Well, this morning we look at Levi. Turn to the person next to you and say, Levi. Levi. He's referred to as Levi in the Gospel of Luke. The other two Gospels he's referred to as Matthew. Levi and Matthew, the same person. Some scholars have argued that it's not, but the overwhelming majority is it is the same person. And when we look at the, the disciple Levi, we're going to look at two things. We're going to see two things. One, we're going to learn one thing about being a disciple, and actually it's the foundational thing about being a disciple. So we're going to learn that. And then the other thing we're going to learn is actually we're going to learn something about God. We're going to learn something about the heart of Jesus. So let's have a look at it. Luke chapter 5, we start at verse 27, uh, and we're going to read to about 32, uh, but we're going to start with the first two verses. The context here is Jesus has just... Uh, healed a paralyzed man, a guy who could not walk, Jesus has come along and healed him. And he was, a, he was an outcast to his society because of his physical disability. Now we're going to see Jesus uh, talk to someone who's an outcast, not because of his physical disability, but because of his status in society, because of his occupation, because of what he does for a living. This is what it says, verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. And so the author here, Luke is the author of, of this gospel, and, and it's very intentional, the words that he's, he's using here, that Jesus went out and saw, this is a deliberate act, this isn't a chance act, he, he saw this guy named Levi. He knows who he is, he's going to call him out. Now, if you've been coming to church long enough, you know that tax collectors are, get a bad rap. They're, they're considered not to be very good people. That tax collectors, yeah, for the Jews, uh, were held in the lowest esteem. They were considered bad. The reason why? Well, firstly, they're working for the oppressor. They're working for the Roman emperor, uh, the Romans, and therefore their traders. They were collecting, collecting the tax for the Roman for the, for the Roman, for Caesar, so, so they're traitors. But not only that, the way it worked was that the tax collectors were given a number uh, that, that Rome expected, and then they could actually ask for whatever they wanted, because they got to keep the rest. So let's say Rome said, we want $10, Mr. Tax Collector can go and ask for 15 he can go and ask for 20 he can go and ask for 12 and so not only were they seen as traitors, they were seen as thieves and corrupt. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them, were obviously quite wealthy because they would take what they wanted. And so it's fair to say most Jewish people did not like tax collectors. We read here that Levi is a tax collector. He's not a chief tax collector. Can anyone remember uh, in, the, in the gospel who was a chief tax collector? One of my favorite Bible characters, Zacchaeus, the little guy who climbed up the tree. He was a chief tax collector. So he was right up the, the pyramid, the um, triangle network marketing scheme was Zacchaeus, but this guy, Levi, probably a little bit lower down. And Levi probably worked for someone like Zacchaeus. Zac uh, Levi probably went out and did all the 
gathering of the, of the funds, and obviously the chief tax collector takes a, a cut as well. So Levi is a tax collector. And I think by saying that sometimes, we kind of just, ah, oh, he's just a tax collector, and no one liked him. Who would like someone who collects tax? We don't like the tax man now, you know? Uh, but it's, it's, it's a lot more embedded than that. This is what one commentator says. Ca- tax collectors as a group were despised as snoops and corrupt. Now listen to this. The social equivalent of pimps and informants. An informants is someone who's working for, for, for the, op- the, the enemy. And a pimp is what? Someone, uh, not to be rude, but someone who uh, sells females like a piece of meat to have sex, they take the large percentage of the money and then they give it a little bit to the, to the lady. And so this commentator says, that's the kind, of, the kind of, we don't like pimps. Pimps are bad, aren't they? You wouldn't be hanging out with them. And so, so th- this commentator says, well, that's the kind of animosity and that's the kind of thing that a tax collector was doing. It's real. And then Jesus says this, after this, Jesus went out, I saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth, and he says two words, follow me. Follow me, Jesus said to him. No job description, no portfolio, no superannuation or or exempt benefits or anything like that. He just says two words, doesn't tell him what a disciple's going to do. Obviously, Levi's heard about Jesus. He may have even seen the miracle that was just performed. But he says two words, follow me. Follow me. And look at the response of Levi. A tax collector, an outcast, a thief who's corrupt. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. The starkness of of Jesus' request of follow me is actually matched by Levi's response. Follow me? What does that mean? Is that where are you going? Are we going somewhere? Or the the way that Luke is writing this is he's, he's drawing all the attention. He says it in three ways. Got up, so he was sitting down. Levi gets up. He's no longer standing. He left everything. There's money there and whatever. He just leaves it. And then it says, and he followed him, got up, left everything and followed him. Let me say this. So this is really, really important, I think. Uh, The power of the word, and I can't remember who said this, one of the commentators. The power of the word to claim the hearts of men is seen most clearly here, where the command is so bold and unprepared. And the ties which might have bound Levi to his old life are so strong. Levi's got wealth, he probably doesn't have friends, but you can buy them. He's got all that stuff. And right there, Jesus says, follow me. The, the, the ties to that old life are so, so strong. But the word of God, the, the spoken word of Jesus is more powerful. The power of the word to claim Levi's heart. And, and, and again, there's a sense there that Levi actually has re- repents and follows Jesus. He gets up, he leaves everything, and he follows Jesus. So here's our first point when it comes to learning about being a disciple. And that is this, first point about learning about being a disciple. 
There's only one point we, we look at today in regards to being a disciple, and that is this. The priority in our lives is no longer collecting taxes, but following Jesus. The priority in our lives is no longer collecting taxes, but following Jesus. If you know the story a bit earlier, Jesus actually said to a bunch of who? Fishermen said the same thing, follow me. So they could fill in the blank. The, the priority in our lives is no longer fishing, but following Jesus. The priority in our lives is no longer our occupation, but following Jesus. The priority in our lives is no longer about making money, but following Jesus. The, follow, the, the priority in our lives is no longer about parenting, but following Jesus. Now, following Jesus impacts and changes and molds and, and brings life to all of those things. But right here, Jesus says two words. It's very, very clear. And this is the key attribute and the hardest attribute about being a disciple. See, being a disciple is what? Following someone. And in this case, if you're a disciple of Jesus, it's following Jesus. This is the key attribute. This is the first as at at attribute. If you want to be a disciple, you have to follow Jesus. You fall under the authority, the kingship of, of King Jesus. You can't be a disciple if you don't follow him. If you're not following him, you're just doing your own thing. You're going for a walk. To be a disciple, you follow. And this is demonstrated here by Levi at the tax booth. Um, I, I suppose a sub-point is this. A discipleship means a priority commitment to Jesus. That our number one commitment should be to Jesus. Now, Jesus, if Jesus is essential in, in who we are, then that affects everything. But our priority, this is, what, this is what happens here. This is the hardest bit of being a disciple. This is the first bit about being a disciple. It starts with following. Doesn't start with behaving doesn't start with being baptized, doesn't start with coming to church, those things can all be a part of it, but the actual part where we, we are a disciple is where we choose to follow Jesus, where we get up from our tax booth and we follow, we leave everything and we follow. You cannot be a disciple unless you follow. Now that happens at a point of where you say yes to Jesus, but then it's a daily choice, isn't it, to follow? It's a daily choice to be a disciple. We choose whether we follow Jesus. Discipleship means a priority commitment to Jesus. Look at the words of Jesus. Again, hard words to hear sometimes. He's talking to his original disciples then. And he says this, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. And what? Read it with me. Follow me. Didn't say give money. Didn't say become a member didn't say any of those things, didn't say read the Bible every day, it said follow me. Now we'll see part of those things are, are what it means to, to grow and become a disciple, but the, the key and the first bit is follow. Deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. We don't necessarily like following, we like to lead, we like to walk, we like to go our own way. But when you're a disciple, you choose under your own to follow. Follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Wow. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Pavel Polaz, who's a, a Russian 
he exiled from Russia, um, a Russian Christian, and was part of the underground church there. He says, in Russia, Christians, and I think this could be the same for Australians, he says, in Russia, Christians are tested by hardship. But in America, you could say Australia, uh, you are tested by freedom. And testing by freedom is much harder. Nobody pressures you about your religion, so you're relaxed and you're not concentrated on Christ, on his teachings and how he wants you to live. Interesting thought, isn't it? Most of the time we pray that the pressure would go away. And in fact, I, I don't know if it was him, I kept reading that the, they would say, we don't pray that the pressure would go away, we pray that we can handle the pressure, that we can be a faithful follower of Jesus during the pressure. Um, the priority in our lives is no longer collecting taxes, but following Jesus. I don't know if you can relate to this story, uh, playing cricket with uh, children or your kids, if you have kids, if you've ever played cricket, uh, beach cricket out in the backyard or whatever, we've played a few times, or sometimes it's not even a formal game of cricket, it's just a ball and a bat, and I've noticed over the years, uh, you, when you're playing cricket, whether it be with your wife or your children, you tend to get the same response, it's too fast, you're throwing it too fast, you're throwing it too high, you're throwing it too low, and eventually, I can't remember which one, one of the children said once, uh, throw it where I'm swinging the bat. <laughs> if you just throw it where I'm swinging it, then I'll be able to hit it. And, and you know what? I think uh, sometimes we do that with our relationship with Jesus. Well, I will follow, I'll follow you as long as uh, your plans for me meets my plans that your demands fit inside my box. As long as you're throwing the ball where I'm swinging the bat, where I'm swinging the bat, then guess what? I will follow you. But that's not how following works. Following means we go where the person in front of us goes. And so here, quickly, before we continue the story, three ways uh, I think we can help uh, or things that can help when it comes to following. One, give God a blank check. Give God a blank check. Don't put parameters on location or role or salary or authority when it comes to God. Has anyone ever signed a blank check? Has anyone ever signed a check in the last two years? <laughs> Has anyone ever signed a blank check? It's scary, isn't it? Especially depending on who you give it to. Because you don't know, you're actually giving them all the authority and you trust them when you give them that blank check. And so you're like, here, go and buy your lunch with that blank check, whatever it is. And so when it comes to God, give God a blank check. We're saying we're falling, I don't, no parameters on location, on role or salary, authority. God, this is it. Give God your life. Let him fill in the blank of the check for you. Then you need to adjust where you're swinging the bat. Second one, maybe could help. Ask God, where in my life am I waiting for you to adjust your throwing before I follow you with all my being. So just ask God. It, it might be a little, He might just reveal a little area, a small area of your life where you're not following His plans fully. Uh, turn from that, because that, some of those small things become big things. And so ask Him, even this morning, where in my life, God, am I waiting for you to adjust the ball, for you to adjust throwing, so then I can follow, when actually He's asking you to adjust where you're swinging. And the third one is this, don't get frustrated. Don't get frustrated with God's plans for you. I, I think so often we tend to speak of God's plans for our lives in the negative because we, we, we surrender. 
You, you know what I mean? It's like if we surrender, there's almost a negative aspect to it. Oh, wow, it's so hard. I'm surrendering my life to God. Now, God calls us to surrender, but, but the best place, the safest place, the greatest place to be is in the will of and the plan of God. That's what He wants for your life. And so we shouldn't speak ill of it. Uh, yes, it could be scary sometimes, or, or, or you're not sure. Sometimes He doesn't tell us the full plan. He might be preparing us. But, but don't get frustrated with God's plan for you, uh, or, or begrudge it, or, or speak down to it. This is the plan that God has for me. Wow. That God does have a plan and purpose, and I'm going to step into it. That should be exciting. I'm not saying it's not scary. But the priority in our lives is no longer collecting taxes but following Jesus. So that's the thing. First thing we learned this today about being a disciple is it's all about following. You cannot be a disciple unless you follow Jesus. It happens when you say yes to Him, and then it's a daily, daily choice. It can be an hourly choice. It can be a 10-minute choice. You're following Jesus in your interactions, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act. Let's continue to read. So we see... That Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. What is Levi's reaction? Well, Levi has a party. Chuck's a party. He's super, super excited that he puts on a feast. It says here, Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and, and, uh, and other sinners, some translations say, were eating with them. So obviously Levi had some cash. It was a great banquet. At his house, he puts on a party. Why? He's celebrating that he's found life, that he's a follower of Jesus. And maybe he wants his friends to actually meet this Jesus guy as well. And Jesus goes to this party um, and, and, and celebrates with them. And in verse 30, we see, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they're probably not there because to go there, that would make them unclean. You know, sometimes when the party's down the road, you can hear the music and the people, ah, and it's like, for me now, when it's like 8.30, I'm like, gee, that party's going late. Or should, really, should we ring the local, you know, local, just to ask him? But, but they're, they're probably hearing that, and, and they know that the tax collectors, they know that Jesus is there. And, and so they make this. So the issue is not the party. It's not, the issue isn't the party, but who is invited. The, the tax collectors and, and the sinners are invited, and Jesus is hanging with them. Now, in their, again, in their mind and their thought, they're probably thinking they're doing the right thing, because if they're seen as wrong and evil and sinful, if I go close to them, guess what happens? I become sinful. And so I need to disassociate. Whereas Jesus breaks all that. And says, it's not, it's not sinful for the people where you ha- who you hang out with. That's not, that doesn't make you sinful. Not at all. And then we see Jesus' response here. So, so why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Jesus answered them this. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Levi becoming a, a, a follower of Jesus... Becoming a disciple tells us something about God. Don't just think tax collector, oh, he collects money. Think tax collector, he's like a pimp. That's how controversial it would have been. The controversy 
and the issue that the Pharisees raise is no accident. Levi becomes a follower of Jesus and that says something about God. What does it say something about God? Well, this is, so we've learned the first aspect of what it means to be a disciple. Now we see the one thing we learn about Jesus or about God and that is this. Jesus was proclaiming that no one would be excluded from his movement, not even those society considered irredeemable. Irredeemable. The selection of Levi challenged the cultural views of who can receive God's mercy, who can receive God's grace. The religious people of day had a view of these are the people who can receive God's mercies, these are the people who can receive God's grace. But Jesus comes and he shatters that. And he says, no, 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 no. No one is excluded from my movement. Not even the ones that you think shouldn't be here. And in fact, he uses this beautiful analogy. He says, who needs, who needs a doctor? The people who are healthy or the people that are unhealthy? He says, the people who are sick, they need the doctor. I've come for those who are sick. The irony of that is we're all sick. We're all sick. And we all need a doctor. Here's the thing. Do we put limits on God's grace and mercy? Do we put limits on God's grace and mercy? If we were to change this story, we are now the spiritual people. The, 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 the Pharisees were, and, and they were trying to do their best. And, but now the church is, we're the spiritual people. Do, do we decide? Do we sometimes decide who can receive God's mercy and who can receive God's grace? Well, that group of people can't and that group of people and that demographic. And and if you're from there, you don't get God's grace. Do we do that? Or maybe you do it for yourself. Maybe we even decide that ourselves, that we're not good enough for God. We're not, God, if you knew what I've done, there's no way God would forgive me for that. I I sometimes get this when we talk about baptisms. And and again, I'm not saying everyone says it from this, but there's this sense of, some people say, I'll get baptized when I become a better Christian. So what are you saying? That Jesus' sacrifice was not enough? Sub point for this one is sinners are the only kind of people Jesus calls. Have you noticed that? <laughs> sinners are the only kind of people Jesus calls. We're all sinners. He calls people who are sinners, not perfect people. The, everyone's included. Look at Romans 3, 23 to 25. Now we have to respond to follow like Levi, but it doesn't rule us out. Romans 3, 23 says this, For everyone has sinned. Does it ex- everyone means what? Everyone. <laughs> Even in the Greek. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sin. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe or follow that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Look at 1 Timothy 1.5. This is the Apostle Paul. You know the story of him. He used to kill Christians or, 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 or get Christians killed. And then he becomes a Christian himself. And look what he says. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The only thing that qualifies us to be a follower of Jesus, you know the only thing that qualifies us? 
is our sin. That's the only qualification you need to follow Jesus. Being a sinner was the only qualification that, that, that uh, Levi had for joining Jesus' group of motley followers. The only qualification to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, is that you have sinned, which means all of us in this room. So we learn something about God's grace and mercy there. And so many people say that God is, or Jesus' teachings is, he tol- not to- doesn't tolerate there's no tolerance there. The, the, you know, we, Jesus talks about the wide and then the narrow. Well, there's it, it an aspect that it isn't tolerant, but then there's an aspect that it is. It's available for everyone, okay? Everyone's allowed, black, white, skinny, tall, short, rich, poor. Everyone has access to the narrow. But Jesus is, is, is the only way. Jesus gets accused of not being tolerant because he says, I am the only way. Jesus is the only way, but everyone's allowed, everyone can come, that shows us and tells us something about God. So two things, one, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means to follow Jesus. Two, what have we learned about Jesus? Is His grace and mercy is for everyone, that everyone has access, that everyone can be a disciple, that everyone can be a follower of Jesus, and we see this in the life of Matthew or Levi. He goes from being a tax collector, got up, left everything and followed. Had a big party, invited his friends to hear Jesus, to see Jesus, to smell Jesus, to touch Jesus, to know Jesus. And then some people say, oh, did he really leave it? Well, he followed Jesus for the next three years. We don't really know much more about Matthew's life beyond that. Uh, We do know, most scholars believe that he wrote the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Some have said, did he not? But the overwhelming majority say that Levi Matthew was the author of the Gospel of Matthew. They talk about after Jesus ascended and, 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 and the church started, they believe that Matthew probably went to Persia or, or Ethiopia where he ministered. And, and some have said that, uh, that he was martyred. He was burned, burnt, stoned, stabbed or beheaded. They're not sure, they're still questioning which way. Either way, it doesn't sound great. I'll probably go with the beheading, um, quick. But he was burnt, stoned, stabbed, beheaded for his faith. I'm pretty sure that means getting up, leaving everything and following. To follow Jesus means to make him our number one priority. We've all fallen short of that. We all have access to Jesus because we're all sinners and therefore we can all be a disciple. It's fitting that we celebrate communion this morning. I don't know if, if you got your communion on the way in. I'll just get you to get it out. Don't, don't open it because we'll hear the holy crunch when we start, or the holy rustle. If you haven't got one, just raise your hands and we'll get one to you. I want to read you this story. Very interesting story about a doctor. I won't get you to put that picture up, Mark. I'll tell you when to put that picture up. Let me read you this story, February 15th, 1921, New York City, the operating room of the Kane Summit Hospital. A doctor performing or is performing appendiotomy, which is they're removing the appendix. Anyone had that? Okay, good, excellent. Uh, In many ways, the events of leading to the surgery are very uneventful. The patient has complained of severe abdominal pain. The the diagnosis is clear. 
an inflamed appendix. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane is performing the surgery. In his distinguished 37-year medical career, he has performed nearly 4,000 appendioctomies. Wonder where he keeps them all. That's a lot of appendix that he's removed. So this surgery was in an uneventful uh, way, except for two things. First, the novelty of this operation, the use of local anaesthetic in, in major surgery. Up until that time, they would do, use general anaesthetic. Now, Dr. Kane uh, was a crusader against the hazards of general anaesthetic. He was uh, contended that a local application of anaesthetic is safer. And so Kane, Dr. Kane wanted to prove to the world that general anaesthetic was often unnecessary for, for minor operations. I don't know if having that is minor, but anyway, he, he's, he sought the value in having local over general. And, and until that time, it never really happened. And many of his colleagues agreed with him in principle, but in order for them to agree in practice, they would have to see the theory applied. So Dr. Kane searches for a volunteer, a patient who is willing to undergo surgery while under local anaesthetic. A volunteer is not easy to find. Many uh, would be squeamish at the thought of being awake during their own surgery. Um, others are fearful that the anaesthetic might wear off and then they wake up. Oh, no. Eventually, however, guess what? Dr. Kane finds a candidate. So on Tuesday morning, February the 15th, the historical operation occurs. The patient is prepped, wheeled into the operating theatre. The local anaesthetic is applied. As he's done thousands of times, Dr. Kane dissects the superficial tissue. What's that? The skin? Okay, good. And locates the appendix. He skillfully excises it and concludes the surgery. During the procedure, the, the patient complains of only minor discomfort. The volunteer is taken into post-op, then placed into a hospital ward. He recovers quickly and is dismissed two days later. Dr. Kane had proven his theory. Thanks to the willingness of a brave volunteer, Kane demonstrated that local anaesthetic is a viable and even preferable alternative. Now, at the start of this uh, little story, I said there was two things that were weird about this. First one was it was local anaesthetic. The second fact that made this surgery quite unique is that the use of the local anaesthetic was done on a patient that actually happened to be Dr. Kane. So here's a picture. The surgery of Dr. Kane on Dr. Kane was actually done by Dr. Kane. So he performed the removing of his appendix on himself. I wonder if you can get HBF for that. But there he is. To prove his point, Dr. Kane operated on himself. Wow. A wise move. The doctor became a patient in order to convince the patients to trust the what? The doctor. 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes to us as one of us to convince us that, that, that he can be trusted. He becomes the patient so we can trust the doctor. Jesus said he came to the sick, which is all of us. We've all got different lives. We've all made mistakes. We all do that. 
but he calls us to follow him. Everyone has access to that. This morning, as we open, I'll encourage you to open the top bit. And before you take the bread, which represents the body that was broken, I want us to reflect on this question. Where in my life am I waiting for you or God to adjust the throwing before I follow? What areas of my life am I not following? Only people who are followers of Jesus take this because by taking this, you're saying you are a disciple, you are a follower of Jesus. So I want you to thank Jesus for operating on himself. I want you to thank Jesus for all that he's done. But before you take the bread, I want you to examine are there areas where you are not following, where he is not a priority. So you can do that in your own time and and then we will drink the juice together in a second. So in your own time now, just reflect on those things. ask you to stand now you can remove the paper or the the crunchy bit off the the rest of the communion the Bible says that when we take the bread and we drink the wine in remembrance of him we're, we're saying something about who we are in relation to him that we are a follower, we are a disciple who we are to each other that we are the church, the body But also we're saying something about what's to come. That there will be a time when Jesus returns. And so when we drink together, we do all of those things. We say we follow. We follow. So let's drink together and even in our own minds say, I follow you, Jesus. Father, we thank you. We firstly thank you for your son, Jesus. Your son, Jesus, comes down to us as one of us. To bridge the gap between us and you. He does it in a way that says, you know what, I'm going to experience, I'm going to become like you and then I'm going to die and pay the price for you so that you may trust me. Thank you. Thank you Jesus for that. Lord, help us to follow 
May we lay all our other things at the foot of the cross. And may you be our number one priority in all aspects of our lives. Lord, we, we know that's not easy. We, we, we hold on to things thinking they'll bring security, identity, comfort. Lord, help us to just let them go. We want to follow you individually and as a church. Lord, help us be people and a church that demonstrates your grace to everyone, regardless of economic status, regardless of nationality, regardless of sexual orientation. Lord, that's for you. To, you deal with that stuff. May we be a people who says by our actions and our words that the grace that Jesus offers is for everyone. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Or-